Hello, friends. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for showing up. On this show, I talk with people who are living meaningful lives, people who give a damn. If you love this show, please hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. It would mean the world to me. Before I share more about this week's podcast episode, I want you to join me in doing something kind of weird, but I hope it'll be helpful for you. So it's not a secret that I'm a Christian, a reluctant Christian these days, but a Christian nonetheless. Some of you are religious and some of you are not. And I love that about this family, this community. But for those of you that don't know, Easter is 50 days long, not one day like most people think. It begins on Easter Sunday and ends on Pentecost Sunday. This past weekend was the fourth Sunday of Easter, Good Shepherd Sunday. Whether you're religious or not, most of you know the 23rd Psalm, which begins with, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So on this fourth Sunday of Easter, Good Shepherd Sunday, obviously it's based on Psalm 23. So this past weekend, I was reading the 23rd Psalm in Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation of the Bible, and I noticed that in the first few verses, the commonly shared, he restores my soul, speaking of the Good Shepherd, in the message, it's translated, you let me catch my breath. He restores my soul is translated, you let me catch my breath. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading it. Many of you don't know me personally, but I'm sure you can pick up from my words and stories and these conversations that I typically go hard. I work too much. I sleep too little. I'm typically building too many things at once and rarely take the time to slow down long enough to catch my breath. I'm guessing some of you are like me and haven't slowed down long enough to catch your breath in a while. Or maybe you're trying really hard to slow down, but you can't seem to catch a fucking break and life feels heavy and hard and too much. Now, this podcast is all about giving a damn and living meaningful lives, which could imply doing, 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 going, going, going. But we can't do good in the world if we aren't healthy. So I invite you right now, as you're listening to this on a walk with your dog, in your office, driving around in your car, I invite you to catch your breath with me. Again, whether you're religious or not, go with me here for a few seconds and receive from the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd wants you to catch your breath. So I'm going to be silent for a few seconds while you physically catch your breath with me. Take some deep breaths with me. How do you feel? I hope you feel better. At least once a day, I do just that. Usually it's more than three deep breaths, but I do that at least once a day. I stop, I close my eyes, I take some deep breaths, and I remember that I'm just one person and I can't do it all. 
I do the deep breath work with my kids as well. When things get heated and we aren't focused on fixing a problem in a conversation in our home, we all stop, we take deep breaths, and then we resume our conversation. And it always goes better after taking those deep breaths. And I honestly don't know why I was compelled to do that on this podcast this week, but maybe you needed it. I know I did. Okay, switching gears now. Over the past couple of weeks, we've had some scheduling mix-ups and a couple of guests that needed to postpone recording a conversation with me. So this week, you're getting a highlights episode, but I don't want you to think that you're getting leftovers or just something to fill the time. The clips you're about to hear are some of the moments that stood out to me from recent conversations. And more than that, some of these moments are moments that you have told me that stood out to you. So over the next hour or so, in this order, you're going to hear from founder of Girls Who Code, Reshma Sajani, actor and activist, Coleman Domingo, actor, activist, author, and entrepreneur, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, best-selling author and adventure seeker, Jedediah Jenkins, best-selling author, Angie Thomas, and actor, director, humanitarian, and now brand new author as of today when this podcast releases April 27, Justin Baldoni. So before we jump in, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. And now here are some of my favorite moments and some of your favorite moments from my conversations with Reshma Sajani, Coleman Domingo, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, Jedediah Jenkins, Angie Thomas, and Justin Baldoni. Let's go. As an Indian woman, right, I recognize that like people assume a certain set of things about me. Mm. I'm not going to kill you. I'm smart. You know what I mean? I am, you know, going to take my place in line. And so... My no one crosses the street when I am walking down it. If anything, I'm not seen. The amount of people who cut in front of me or who push me, right, and don't say sorry, like I'm not seen. But I recognize that I have proximity to whiteness, and that gives me a whole bunch of unearned privilege that I do not deserve. Hmm. And so that's the conversation we need to be having with other communities of color. I mean, there's a lot of introspection around, again, the Indian American. And my parents came here and benefited from the civil rights movement. But very, so, you know, when you think about Indian American exceptionalism, it's not because we worked harder. It's because a certain subset of us were let in if we had certain qualifications. Yep. And then we were asked to adopt many of the prejudices that we're here and to kind of just look the other way wow, and shrink ourselves. And so, and it, what, you know, and so that is what, why it's so important for us to look at what is our role as allies in the movement mm. and what are some of the things that we too have to give up, right? Because we never earned it in the first place. Yeah. No, I love that idea. You said something super important that I don't think I'll forget anytime soon. And I love the, the the wording there. This this idea of infiltrating, right? Because they're not you're you're totally right to hone in on the fact that it's, I mean, and especially 
if we're going to get down to who's the who's the majority stakeholder in the not relinquishing of power, it's old white it's white men, right? Like just look at every look at the business world, look at the political world, look at every it's it's old white men everywhere you look, right? And so there's just a but but also every human does not like to relinquish control, right? right. Like it just it's it's part of who we are, especially if it's something that we really love or think that we need to be a part of. So they're not going to give it up. Therefore, we need to slowly but surely infiltrate and you've got to something that I try to focus on as well and that you seem to already have a grasp on is this long game, right? Yeah. We're so, we're so focused. We, we, we love instant gratification. That's not always a bad thing, but we want things now. We want things to happen now. We want change to happen now. And the people that win are those that find, find the right allies, find the right team. And they, they have the long game in view. Yeah. They're, they're okay with maybe even stuff that they're working on outliving. Like I'm not yeah. going to see the fruits of my labor and that's okay. Cause that's how the fucking world works. Like that's yeah. how things happen is you work. I've mentioned John Lewis, like he is not going to see, like I'm sure in his lifetime, he wished he could see more progress on race relations and other in, in uh, civil rights and otherwise, but he didn't get to see all of that. And I don't think that he cared all that much on his yeah. dying bed. He was thinking, I lived my life well. I, you know, yeah. I did it. I did it well. So I love that infiltration long game uh, mindset. That's yeah. Really and cool. I would, I'd add just bravery and courage. You know, one of the things I love about AOC, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, she is authentic about what she believes and she lifts other, other women up with her. Right. And so to me, it's like the other thing sometimes we're not that great about as people of color and as women is we sometimes just, we get there and then we shut the door behind us. Mm, sure. You know? And so I think we have to be very intentional about when we have power, when we have influence, when we have platforms to bring others along with us and to make room and sometimes to step aside for someone else's leadership. Um, and I think the, the part about courage and about really, and I think I get more courage the older I get in some ways, right? Which is ironic because, mm. you know, you think you're like this insurgent when you're in your 20s, but it's really by the time you're in your 80s when you're like, I don't give a fuck. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and I think that that's something that is really, really, really important for us to kind of call it what it is. And, but still be willing to have conversations and to bring people along. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of, I don't understand people that aren't a fan of AOC. I get it. She's like, I don't get you know, it she, she's intense, but like, oh, how do you argue against anything that she advocates for? Like I am, I am 100% here for her Instagram rants when she gets on and just like lays it out. Like she's the, here, here's the deal. People love this authenticity. I think it's why, I think it's why working class people gravitated to Donald Trump so much. And again, I don't, I don't understand it. I can't fathom it. You couldn't hand me a suitcase full of cash to ever vote for him, but I understand it in that he communicated directly with them after all their lives, seeing all of this, you know, just bureaucratic bullshit, like not, be, you know, writing into your Senator and never hearing back. Like right. that's what they've been dealing with. Now they just had this direct pipeline, right? Well, AOC is the uh, she is the better version. She is okay. the re she is the realized version of what people want. There, they want yeah. that interaction. They want that connection. And I love that you also you talked about you know doing it together. Like she didn't just slam the door behind her, which she could have. She could yeah. have said she could have said I made it in. Now let me go make a name for myself. And she's, you know, this is a cool lesson for all of us. When you do things as a team, you'll also do well. Like you're not yeah. giving anything up, right? 100%. That, that, that old proverb: If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So again, it's the long view. I think. Well, I think 
Yeah, that's right. It's a lot. And it's also just like you build your allies. One of the things that like blows me that I've all, I was also thinking, I was reading Barack Obama's book and it was interesting when he gets to the place where, you know, he does a speech, right? Everyone loves him. And it's clear that the next person in line is supposed to be Hillary Clinton. But what happens? People see his potential. They see his potential greatness. And all these guys line up, right? Chuck Schumer, right? Ted Kennedy. And they say, we'll help you. We'll show you the way. We'll rally people around you. Again, against the person who had been there. No one did that for AOC. In fact, they did quite the opposite. Right. So everything that she has achieved, she had to fight for. Yeah. And it's it's different than Barack Obama because there was this kind of halo put on him and a very powerful white man moved mountains to get him where he got to. Hmm. And most women and most women of color I know never get that. Yeah. Never so get that. It's so true. In stories like with like AOC, you know, people love to, and I would never do this, but you know, you know, the kind of people I'm talking about, they love to point out they're like, oh, before this, she was a bartender, which is leaving out so much context, right? She's a, she's an accomplished, she's ridiculously smart, accomplished academically and only came back because her father died. And she, she was bartending to, because it's a, it's a, an amazing way to make money in New York. And she's bartending to help support her family. Like yeah. that is way more noble and big of her than anything that these, you know, naysayers are doing. Anybody who's from Philadelphia will tell you, Philadelphia is, uh, we love to be even seen as the underdogs. You know, like, don't, don't, I know you're not checking for us, but in that, but that's part of our charm. We're like, you're not thinking that we're going to survive, but we're like Rocky. We're going to, we're going to keep going. We're going to fight and we're going to find a way in. And I think that I have a lot of that in me, to be very honest. I think it's built from being from Philadelphia. I think um, I think I can always uh, look at an opportunity or look at, at a closed door as an opportunity. And I've had many closed doors. So any, any closed door, you're able to like, you know, let me just rethink. I'm still going to get in there. It's just going to take a little more time. And I may have to come through another opening that they had no idea. But I'm going to keep doing the work. Hmm. We don't give up, I think. And I think that came from my parents. I think we're very resilient people. Um, I've watched people um, overcome tremendous um, odds and systems. And I think I have that in me. And so I, I always think that, listen, I'm I'm an I'm a African-American guy who is very proud to be a descendant of slaves. Because I always say that, like, in order for me to be here, someone someone did it for me. Someone loved harder. Someone fought harder. Someone stayed the course. Someone stayed alive under unimaginable rigors that was set upon them in this world. So who am I to say, I can't do it, or I can't be it, or I can't move through something? That's the thing that I've explored even in my own life is knowing my own history and knowing the history of of where I come from, because I think that's essentially an American problem. We don't know ourselves, and that's why things happen the way they do. We have to know ourselves, and therefore you know yourself, you got all the courage and strength and rigor to do whatever the hell you want, to actually care to actually give a damn, you know, <laughs> to make it meaningful, to be mindful. So I think that that's where it comes from, to be very honest. I think it's a, it's knowing yourself. I remember I went to, it just made me think of this. When I went to um, Temple University and um, hmm. I, the first time I learned about African-American history, truly, and I went to all black schools growing up, 
was when I got, went to college and I joined the African-American Student Union. There was a lot that I didn't know, that I didn't mm-hmm. know about myself. But also, I think there's a lot that my white friends didn't know about African-Americans. So it's like there was this <laughs> disconnect because we didn't know each other and we didn't know ourselves. And so we would just educate each other on things like, hey, read this book, read, read the autobiography of Malcolm X, read this. We, we would hand each other things because suddenly, especially in college, you're like, whoa, whoa, I wasn't taught anything <laughs> about who we yeah. are. And, and so I think it, part of that. I think because I feel like I've always had that, um, I don't know, I, I think I love to uh, explore that, to interrogate that, that, I don't know, I know that that's a part that makes me feel closer to the world and closer to all the things that I'm doing, you know? It's uh, a really incredible point to know yourself and know who you are in the setting that you're in. We're very yeah. much, in, we're a very uh, undereducated society, maybe more than ever. Uh, you know, part of that is due to the fast paced nature of everything, social media, there's so many opportunities each and every day to get that serotonin hit, to get that dopamine hit, to, to get those quick fixes rather than to stop, to shut our mouths more often, to listen, to learn, to read books, like read actual books, to learn our history. Where do we come from? What are the, what are the mistakes that our, you know, forefathers and foremothers made, uh, that we should, that we should not make again that we can, that we can prevent this time around right and it's so it's just fascinating that um we don't know where we come from people don't know basic history you know the uh, uh um so many people that marched in you know these uh that marched in you know on on the 6th the uh, in the capitol building right that that they had no idea what they were doing they had no idea what they were doing they have no idea what they're standing for. The only thing that they're attached to is this charismatic, um, shitty human that got them, that kind of enthralled them with his charisma and with his, you know, with his uh, 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 kind of vision. But they don't know what they're fighting for. They don't know. I mean, they're demanding war. I mean, how many TikToks and, you know, tweets and Facebook posts had people talking about like, let's start a war. Let's start a civil war. Like this is worth starting a war over. You know, like, Donald- and, I, and, I, and I always wonder why it's funny because I think that I'm, my whole time after that, I felt kind of, you know, I was sad about it because Very. I felt like, I felt like that they had, they have no idea that they've been duped because I think, it, you know, it's like, I'm like, do you really think he cared about you or he cares about what you want or what you need or what's on your table or what, well, but he, he fed into something that you believe that you were a part of. But and I mean I have I have some friends I have some friends who 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 believed in him, I don't know Same. if they and 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 it's and I always try and I try to have conversations with them not try, we did have conversations, but you know and I would tell them my point of view but I'm like, you know I I I think that I, w- the thing that I saw the most is that people were like I really thought what was the end game what did you actually think you were going to do after that what were you going to run the country was that was that what's going to happen you were going to do this thing and restore so like what were you going to restore because i'm like we're moving forward we're moving forward you got to get caught up in that moving forward and 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 letting it be be about this new world again what what we're talking about how do you lean into what is inevitable we're moving forward we have to move forward when it comes to society being a part of the, the global world all that stuff makes sense but if you're trying to go backwards to the 50s the 60s. I, I for one, not everybody's not interested in that. Yeah. I know where I know where my people were. 
the fifties. I'm not interested in that, and you're not going to get me to co-sign that. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know what I mean? That no. doesn't benefit, and it doesn't benefit you either. No. When at the end of the day, and I think that there's so much. Hopefully, they, I feel like everybody's taking a pause now. They realize how much anger and awful rhetoric that was just being spewed. It's like, yeah. do you want to live with that? Do you want to live with that always? Do you want that to be in your heart? Or do you want love and kindness with each other? I think you want love and kindness. Yeah. I think you want respect. I think actually you really do. You get caught up in in, in that anger and, you know, ah, I want to tear it down, you know. But at the end of the day, don't you want to love more? Don't you want to have a peaceful life? And don't you want somebody else to have a peaceful life too? You can't have that and they not have it too. <laughs> we, that, you know? that that requires going back a few minutes slowing down that 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 requires uh having meals with uh people that we don't you know agree Absolutely. with that, that requires Absolutely. that requires the 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 tearing down of metaphorical walls and gates and fences that we've constructed throughout our yeah. lifetimes we're always constructing them and knocking them down right it's this constant up and down cycle but more than ever the last five years. I mean, if there was ever anyone in the history of this country to polarize people so quickly and so vehemently, it was Donald Trump. I mean, this whole notion going back a few minutes ago, like the fifties were not good for, you know, black people. The fifties were not good for so many. The fifties are not good for women. The fifties were not good for, for very many people. Except people for, it, for Muslims. It, it, was, yeah. it was good for, it was good for white, white landowning men, you know, in the same way that the constitution is good for white landowning men. Who wants to go back there? But he somehow got them riled up about this "Make America Great Again" notion. That, because there's like, a, because there, there's that promise. There's that promise that they they're on top of something. I think yeah. the moment you you divide and you make people feel like they're better than someone or you deserve to have more than someone. Even the thing when I would hear, you know, the, some of the guys with the Capitol riots, we built this, we built this Capitol. Actually, no, you didn't. Actually, you know who built it? People from my descendants built yeah. it. Actually, just just actually just open up a history book, uh, an, an American history book, open up American. You didn't build anything and you no. and you in particular didn't build anything. My chosen path happened to be um, entertainment, but I really believe that it's my nature. Whatever I would have done, if I would have gone into engineering or if I would have gone into tech, because something I was really excited about, I love tech. Um, I know I would have had the same nature, which is wanting to be excellent and striving for excellence every day and wanting to make sure that I, you know, have something to say at the table, um, wanting to have a sense of purpose. You know, I'm built like that. Uh, and I love to recognize even the smallest opportunities and, you know, make them um, an advantage for myself. From when I was very young, I chose to go to America when I was 12 years old, I told my parents, I want to study with my cousins because I saw that as an opportunity for myself to mm -hmm. experience a different world at 12. And, you know, so, and I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it was like going to a high school in America. God knows I didn't know what that meant. But um, I learned. I learned. Um, if there was ever a choice, and I say this in the book, to sink or swim, I'm not the kind of person who'll sink. Yeah, you're going to give it your damnedest to swim. Yeah. You know, you you went to you went to the US or you I guess I'm here. You came to the US when you're 12, 13, <laughs> did a high school, you know, did a few years. You didn't go. You're I'm here. You did a few years here and then you went back and you talked about how you know, American high school did not prepare you 
super well, right? So I grew up in Guatemala. I was born in the U.S. and then my dad is Guatemalan. We moved back there for 10 years. And, you know, a lot of the kids that I was around, this is something that I wish, I wish your experience and I wish my experience on every American kid. Here's why. Because when you start branching out, it is impossible to believe in American exceptionalism when you get out into the world. Because you start seeing that there is so much goodness and greatness out there. I mean, the kids I went to, the, the kids that were my friends on my block in Guatemala, you know, a, a third world war-torn country, we, we moved there right as the civil war was ending. There was violence everywhere. It was crazy. The kids I knew, knew anywhere from three to five to six languages, right? They had studied in Europe. They, they knew how to speak, at least, at the very least, they all knew Spanish and they could speak English as well as I could or better, right? So at least they knew the two languages. You come to the States and kids here can barely speak the one language that they've been given, right? Like literally there's just terrible grammar everywhere all the time. And we've been so conditioned to believe that America is the best at everything that kids don't want to go branch out, right? They don't want to go study abroad. They don't want to believe that there are other amazing, great places out there. And so I wish, you know, you you mentioned in the book that this cultural mashup of your life, you know, you said it invigorates me, it's important to me because I believe that we can all learn from one another, that we all need to learn from one another. And I wish that on American, not just children, Americans. I wish that on people living in this country because it's really, I think it has really hurt us to not believe the best about the rest of the world, to believe that we uh, are better than them and to not go out and learn from them, right? It's so funny you're saying that, Nick, but when I first came at 12 to the States, I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I remember when I was in high school there, it was a great experience. I met some amazing kids. I sure. discovered Hot Pockets. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I remember having this conversation with um, some girl that I was talking to. And uh, I got a sense that, you know, she was like, I've ne- I don't even have a passport. I've never, I didn't, I don't know anything about other countries. She asked me, um, if I go to school on an elephant in back in India, there was a, a level of ignorance, which was crazy, but I took it upon myself to educate them. So in world history class, I remember I did a whole uh, presentation about what India looked like and what countries outside the U.S. looked like. And I remember this girl coming to me and being so fascinated by the fact that, you know, technology at that time which was late 99.9, you know, technology was kind of just erupting around the world, specifically in India. Tech was a really big deal. And I, you know, remember her looking at like really um, sort of high buildings and and being like, I didn't know that, you know, there were buildings like that, et cetera, um, and cars. And, and, I, and this is ninth grade, okay? And she was also like so fascinated by by the fact that, you know, she didn't even know about different countries in the world. And I think it came from, and you hit the nail on the head, but I think it comes from a sense of, you know, we're um, self-sufficient. We don't need to be curious, but that's the beauty of social media, I feel. Like, yes, there's the pros and the cons, and um, but with streaming and social and the internet, actually, the internet was the the, the change um, I, that I see in America from the time that I was a kid 
to the time I've come back now, the curiosity of cross-pollination of cultures, of different people from different parts of the world actually fighting for, you know, representation is creating an education within America about different ethnicities. And, and I think that's, that's why it's so important uh, to normalize different people in, within entertainment. Like that's a big quest of mine. Um, to be able to, you know, see various kinds of movies from different parts of the world or different kinds of people, just exactly like what America looks like represented on entertainment. Because when I was a kid, when I was 13, 14 in the US, I didn't look, I didn't see anyone on TV that looked like me, except maybe Apu from The Simpsons. And that was also a white guy. But like, I didn't see that, right? But I wonder if I did see that if like Xena was Indian, say, for example, considering I saw so many Indian Americans in America or, you know, somebody like, would that have made me feel a little mm. less solitary or a little less alone? I wanted to write a book that felt like you were having that conversation with me. Like I was like, I'll talk about everything about life with you and I'll make it something you can journal about, something easy, something inviting, but also deeply thought-provoking and challenging. And so it was really just the book I wanted to write, which is let's think deeply about what matters about your own life and your own identity. You were one of the first people that I followed on, on Instagram that used the Instagram caption as uh, a blog journal, you know, mm -hmm. longer form, right? Um, and that's where you, you roped me in because I was already on board, like, I didn't think that I would like that. I don't like that for most people. Usually, yeah. usually when I see a caption that's longer where it says, you know, like, like click for more. Yeah. For most people, I don't even do that because it's them, you know, I don't know. I just don't, I'm not interested in them elaborating on whatever the photo is. <laughs> but I think people do. I know I long for it. I love these conversations. I could talk to you for 20 hours. Like there's, there's, we, we have, we have a, we have a longing there's so much fast paced shit going on and there's so many quick dopamine hits and there's so many like, let's, you know, let's watch this. Sh like it's a new show or it's new this it's, you know, very quick, fast paced yep. things. Yep. Books are like words, not, not even books. Words are so, so much different than anything else. Like I am working on a TV show right now. I talk for a living on this podcast and, you know, I, 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 yeah, talk for a living and, but I, but I'm fast, but I'm also a big book reader and I have hesitated based on what you just said, what you just described, what this whole idea of writing the book that I would want to read. Mm -hmm. I've had a, a, a very gracious book agent hanging on with me since last year and I've still not sent in a complete uh, book proposal. She's got publishers waiting. She's got people just waiting for this book proposal because of the work that I've been doing. Right. And I just can't get it out. And I think you just clarified it for me that I don't quite know yet what book I would want to read for me. I don't want to write a book just to write a book. Right. It's, it's a lot of fucking work. It's I'm labor. Probably, if you do it like that, it's miserable. It's miserable. And I'm not going to, you know, as a first time author with a pretty small niche platform. Like I'm not going to get paid. I'm not going to get compensated enough for all the work that it's going to be, you know, that's going to yeah. go into it. So I've just been, I just had an email exchange with her the other day and she's like, I'm waiting patiently. You're good. Take your time. But I feel so bad, but also I'm not going to just like push a proposal out there for a book that I'm not going to want to like read. 
right? Uh, exactly. It's like, that is for me, the only way that I can write at all is do I, I'm an extrovert. I'm an Enneagram seven. I'm a double extrovert and I need to work. I need to speak or write to get my thoughts out of my head. Cause I don't, I can't feel them. I can't see them. They're not real. They're just, they're a gray fog until I like solidify them into language but I can, the fog does have a label. Like it knows that I'm like very uncomfortable about like the immigration assimilation debate. Okay. That is like very confusing to me. So that makes me want to sit down, read books, articles, and then try to like put into words. First, I try to put into words what makes me uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. then I try to put into words what I glean from that discomfort and the reading. And so for me, like, working on a book is very much like, God, I wish someone had said, you know, like, like in like streams to the ocean, my new book and my Mm -hmm. chapter on death, I'm like, I find death so interesting because we fear it and we find it to be so unacceptable. And yet everywhere around us in nature is constant death. Like every second is like a hawk killing a squirrel killing a spider, killing an ant, killing a, like it is blood and guts in every direction. And, and yet we do not find that to be morally reprehensible at all. That's great. That's exactly as it should be. And yet death in the human sphere is so horrible is a, is, is a failure. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I, what does that mean? And so processing that confusion out loud and I'm like, ooh, hell yeah, I would read that. Like, I've been thinking about that. I want to read about that. Yeah, and you so picked, it, it makes the writing so much easier. You picked, you know, eight essays, eight topics that I think I'm just I'm looking at them right now, even on my notes, and they're they're things that everybody wants to talk about and doesn't. Oh yeah, you know, like doesn't we skip? I mean, who wants to sit down and have a deep dive on ego or <laughs> or yeah, death. I mean, death is something that I I'm very in line with the Stoics on death, and you know you have this part in the book where you talk about getting off the walking trail, right, and seeing this flower, mm-hmm. and you're thinking I could be the only one to ever see this flower, right, because it could die, and you know somebody walk on it or it just dies naturally. Yeah, I randomly and, went to pee. Like, there's no trail here. No one will ever see this flower. Yeah, and you're you're right to point out that there's death all around us, and we don't scoff at. It. I'm vegan, so I don't partake in this part of nature. But we eat animals. You know, the majority right. of humans eat animals every single day. They have death on their on their lunch plate every single day, and we don't scoff at it. And yet, when we talk about humans existing for a small period of time, um, and then dying, we get super fucking uncomfortable about it. Instead of embracing that as you know, we love to sing Circle of Life on Lion King. And then when it happens to us or when we're thinking about it in our context, it's super reprehensible to talk about. Young people deserve authenticity. They, they deserve us being real and honest with them at whatever level they are at, you know, and they're going to find out about it anyway. They're having these conversations anyway. Um, why not give them the safe spaces to do that, you know? I wish that these school districts who banned my book were just as upset about all the mm-hmm. people losing their lives at the hands of police brutality as they are as at the F-bombs. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think people don't recognize what they do to young people when they 
keep things from them, we end up with adults who don't care about lives beyond their own. Mm. And we see that in the president we just got rid of. Mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine what would he have been like? What would Trump have been like if he read for one? But if he as a kid was introduced to books by black authors about black people, like just think for a second, what if he read those books about black people by black authors or about Latinx so true. by Latinx authors? Or about LGBTQIA people or whatever, whatever marginalization you can think of. Had he and some of these other leaders read those books as young people, maybe we wouldn't be having some of the conversations we had the past four years. Maybe we wouldn't be dealing with some of the stuff we dealt with. So you're seeing what happens when adults are only shown, when young people are only shown their limited world without worrying about anybody beyond themselves, without caring or without knowing what's going on in the world. And you want to reproduce that? No, we should not want to. We have to let young people be exposed to lives beyond their own, things that are happening in the real world, and have those conversations with them. Because if you don't, somebody else will, and it's going to shape their view in a way that you're not comfortable with. And a lot of kids, to your point, you know, you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, but there's a lot of kids that have never left their home, but their yeah. home is in like, you know, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? Like mm-hmm. a super white community. And so, and I, just, I don't know why I picked Kenosha, but there's a lot of like, they're, they're not getting out of their bubble, right? Like right. they've lived there all their lives. And so they need, they need to know about star. They need to know about Brie. They need to know that these stories exist, that these things are happening. Yes, this is fiction, but it's a fiction. It's a fictitious representation of something that's happening millions of times Yes, all over this country, right? Yes. So it, it, these books allow them to, again, not a sanitized version of what is actually happening. We're, I, I Angie want to show you What's actually happening? I'm not going to dumb it down and pretend that the f bomb isn't being thrown around in these situations, yeah. or that, or that Khalil isn't, you know, Khalil's aren't being pulled over for no reason, right? And end up dead on the side of the road. Like that is actually happening, and our kids need to know that that's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk real briefly about um, the the again quick synopsis of on the come up and then your newest book which is only a couple weeks old right it's just been out yeah. for a couple couple of weeks yeah. uh concrete rose give us a peek into what those books are about yeah after all the censorship with the hate you give with it being banned so much i found myself angry um and hurt and frustrated but mm. mainly not because i was being shut down mainly because of the message that was being sent to kids who read my book, who see themselves in it. And that is, your story makes me uncomfortable and I don't think Mm. anybody should read it. Wow. And I wanted to do something about that. So I decided to write a book about a 16-year-old girl who wants to be a rapper and she finds herself censored. Um, Brianna is 16. um, And again, she wants to be a rapper and she sees it as a way to help her mom out and help her family out. Um, But her life is turned upside down when a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons. And she finds herself in the center of a controversy too big for her to control. Um, But in the end, it's up for her to decide how to define herself and how to define her voice. I wrote that book with the black girls in mind who are always told that we're either too much or not enough and never in between. Mm. I wrote it for the young people who were criticized 
for how they say things as opposed to people listening to what they're saying. Um, and I wrote it as an ode to hip hop, which has been not just an art form, but a, but a voice for so many of us, including me. Um, so that's one to come up in a nutshell. Concrete Rose um, is a prequel to The Hate You Give directly. And it follows Maverick Carter, who is Star's dad in The Hate You Give, but in Concrete Rose, he's this 17-year-old kid who's known around the neighborhood for being the son of a former gang legend. But while his father is incarcerated, his mom works two jobs to take care of her and Maverick, and Maverick helps out the best way he knows how, and that's by selling drugs for the King Lord's game. But then he finds out he's a father. And suddenly he has a baby who depends on him for everything. And when he's given the opportunity to go straight, he takes it. But when King Lord's running your blood, it's not as easy as walking away. And Maverick has to decide for himself what it truly means to be a man. So that's Concrete Rose. Um, all three stories are connected in little bits and pieces. Maybe the hate you give and Concrete Rose are connected a bit more, obviously. Sure. But that for me, it's always about showing these young people who are in these harsh circumstances, who still have beauty and who still deserve to at least have dignity. Because what it means for me to be a man is going to be very different than what it means for my for my best friend, Jamie, who's a black man mm. and he's 51. Some of it is there's intersections. It's the same, the same forces, but our experiences are vastly different. Right. And, um, and so these are all just things that we're learning. And again, at the end of the day, we're, we just want to be helpful. We just want to be of service. We want to, we want to, we want men to be happier, to feel better, to, to, to treat the people in their lives better. We want men to not kill themselves at the rates that they're killing themselves. We want men to show up for the women in their lives. So the women don't die at the rates that they're dying. Yep. It affects everybody. And the butterfly effect, I believe of touching one man and, and having him recognize these forces and, and be aware and take account of his actions and, and, and go deep and, and understand the process of what it means to be vulnerable and get help or go to AA, whatever that is, that butterfly effect, um, I don't think is measurable or yeah, quantifiable right. because that one man interacts with how many people in day, how many women in his, in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's the work, man. That's why we're doing it. Well, and I want to affirm the, at least as a spectator on this, this is during the last three or four years, I have seen every, everything that you've done around man enough, whether it's the Ted, Ted talk or the show and now the book and, and other things, it's all, it all feels, and I'm not just saying this, it all feels like bathed in humility. It all feels like we're sharing, like Justin and these other men are sharing their experience, who they are, what they're doing, what they're learning, but none of us have it figured out. And I think that's been the key to success so far and will be the key to success even in this book and in the podcast, I'm sure, is we want to help you unlearn all this bad, terrible shit that you've learned in your life. We want you to view masculinity differently, but we're not saying we have figured it all out and we don't have no. the way, right? Especially now, I think with, you talked about your black friend, Jamie, 51 years old, totally different experience. Today, I, I would, it seems like a really interesting time in history to have this conversation because being a man looks totally different for so many different, I mean, you have gay men, you have trans men, you have, then you have uh, different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. So 
you have to like approach this. And again, I'm, I'm affirming that I think you do this to the best of your ability, at least what I can tell. You have to approach this very like, here are some things that I think apply to everybody that identifies as mm -hmm. a man and that wants, that kind of has this masculinity about them. But you have to like, you have to take all this in and process it for yourself to figure out yeah. what it means for you, right? Well, the whole point of the book is to undefining masculinity instead of redefining it simply means yeah. to make space for anybody who yep. identifies as a man. Yep. Because the invisible line that is drawn before we're born, the box that we're put into, by redefining it, would mean that that line has to keep being redrawn. And I have no interest in redrawing that line. Mm. I just want it to be gone. I think we have to remove the line, get rid of the box. And if you are a man and you identify as a man, then you are a man. Mm -hmm. You don't have to try to be anything else because you already are. And that's the message of the book. That's the point of the book. And, and yes, to your point, the experience looks incredibly different for every man. That's why I'm not your teacher and I'm not your guru. I'm not going to sell you a business class or, or, Hey, here's a, here's this special thing with me on how to be a better man. I have no interest in that. I don't have time for that. I want to make my movies and build my company with this. It's, Hey, this is the shit that happened to me. This is what didn't work for me. And this is how it affected me. I'm sure you have a similar story. And what I found is it doesn't matter if it's a trans man or uh, a gender uh, non-conforming person or a black man or a Middle Eastern man, um, someone who's 50 or someone who's 20. What I'm seeing is the themes are universal. The things I talk about in the book, the things that have happened to me, they're all universal themes. The outcome or the experiences might be different, but I'm sharing my story as an invitation for you to take a look at yours. And if you can take a look at your story and be like, oh shit, that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had a similar experience to that. Oh, well then what else happened? And it'll start to get your brain moving. And again, and I say this early on, I don't believe masculinity is toxic. I love being a dude. I love being a man, mm -hmm. but I also don't want to be a man um, and, and have to disown the parts of me that are also considered feminine because those are also parts that I love of myself. I don't want to have to kill off those parts. Bell Hooks talks about um, the, the act of psychic self-mutilation that men have to perform on ourselves in order to be seen as men. Mm. We have to kill off a part of our humanity, part of our, our sensitivity, our compassion, our empathy, in order to be seen as a real man. Because we're, as men, like the way you were raised, we're not allowed to show our feelings. Mm -mm. We're not allowed to, to suck at something. We're not, we're not allowed to ask for help, right? You just learn by figuring it out. Just do it. Yep. Yep. You're not allowed to, you know, cry when you skin your knee. So where does all of those, where does all that pain go? Where does all the, the doubt and the anxiety go? It goes somewhere. And then yet we wonder why white men, 21 year old white men go and kill people in mass shootings. Well, that's where it goes. It's pain. Yep. It's it's unexpressed pain and sadness and loneliness. It's why men kill themselves. It's why they do these terrible things. It's why they, it's why it's why they rape. It's why they sexually assault. It's why they hurt each other. It's all we're all affected by the same shit, and we got to call it out. Mm -hmm. 
That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending some time with these amazing damn givers and me. Please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about this podcast and all things Let's Give a Damn. As soon as this podcast is over, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever podcast app you use to listen to this show. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for showing up. I'm so grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>